Well, if you don't recognize that scene, uh, it's from Disney's 2004 movie, Miracle, which tells the story of Team USA's dramatic run to the gold medal uh, hockey game at the 1980 Lake Placid Olympics. It's a surprisingly good movie, if you ask me. I don't know if anybody else likes the movie as much as I do. Anybody seen Miracle? Yeah, I think it's a great movie. I was surprised. I watched this Disney movie and, like, was crying at the end. Actually, but that usually happens when I watch Disney movies. But in the movie, we get to watch an assortment of college hockey players from around the country become a true team in every sense of the word. In fact, they become more than a team. By their own admission, they become a family. They beat a much more talented, determined Soviet team through a willingness to fight for each other as brothers. That's the miracle of miracle how a group of complete strangers, even competitors, could become a family of brothers. Expecting that to happen to such dramatic effect, uh, frankly, requires something miraculous. And that's the miracle of the church as a family, too. To think that complete strangers from many backgrounds could come together as a family, unified around a common purpose, like we have gathered here at Rooftop. Well, to expect that to happen, frankly, requires some sort of miracle. But it has happened, and it's happened all around the world over many centuries. God gathering strangers together to make families, church families. And that's our theme this morning as we continue our message series, What the Church Was Meant to Be. This series is all about uh, the Christian church, that group of believers that has been gathered together to do the work of Jesus in the world. The church is God's gathering of his people. We belong to him. As such, we should be committed to his purpose for us. What is his purpose for us? What was the church meant by God to be? Uh, We're answering that question, what the church was meant to be, by looking at some of the pictures and some of the images used in the Bible to describe what the church is. Interestingly, the Bible never really defines the church. The Bible never really says, here is exactly what the church is. The Bible just describes what the church is kind of like. It uses a lot of pictures and images. Uh, The church is like an army. The church is like a body. The church is like a city on a hill. The church is like a flock. And the church is also like a family. It's one of the most common metaphors, in fact, used in the Bible to describe God's people. Uh, To describe God's people. Uh, Peter, for example describes the church as the household of God. Uh, Paul writes in Galatians that we are the family of believers. Uh, God himself is repeatedly called, what, our Father, which implies a familial relationship, not just between God and me as an individual, but from us as a body. God is our Father. The author of Hebrews calls Jesus our brother, and tells us to keep loving each other as brothers and sisters. In fact, uh, the New Testament portion of the Bible, the New Testament refers to the people of God as brothers and sisters over 300 times. And just to be clear, the word family here does not refer to some sort of scientific classification or grouping. We are not a family in the same way that there's a family of uh, broad-leafed hardwood trees or a family of of S-class sport utility vehicles. The word family here does not mean similar things grouped together. For us, family refers to people bound together in eternal relationship with each other. That's what 
That's how the word family is used in the New Testament. People bound together in eternal relationship with each other. The model here is actually God himself. We are a family in the same sort of intimate, relational, interconnected way that God himself is a family. God is a trinity, right? Father, Son, and Spirit living in perfect unity and intimate relationships. God himself is a family. That's our model. We are a family in the same sort of way that God himself is one. Now, before we get too far, uh, let's be honest that this image of the church as a family might not be that inspiring to you because not everybody's families are the happy places that families are supposed to be. The metaphor works for me because I come from, I literally come from a big, happy family. Uh, my parents love each other. They have for nearly half a century. Uh, my siblings get along. Uh, the cousins and the grandkids are all friends. We all like each other. It's crazy. It's crazy. My, in, in my family, we all like each other, except for my little brother Brad. He's staying in there in the back. Nobody really likes him. We just haven't had the chance to tell him yet. So, so when, you know, a pastor would, like, tell me, hey, the church is kind of like a family, I'm like, oh, that's amazing. That's wonderful. Like my family. What a blessing. Some of you might not have my experience, though. Frankly, for some of you, the metaphor of church as family might make you want to throw up. I'm thinking of our old intern and friend, Donnie, who talked very openly from the stage about his own family problems growing up. I mean, raised by drug-dealing parents, his family was a nest of dysfunction and neglect. That experience defined the word family for him. I mean, when he showed up on his first day of work and said, welcome to the rooftop family, he was like, oh no, <laughs> I didn't think that's what this was. It took him years to have the very notion of family redefined by the family of rooftop. Just like Donnie, maybe the word family has been poisoned in your own mind. I mean, when you hear it suggested that the church should be a family, you shudder to think that the church should behave like your family did. And to be sure, plenty of churches actually do function that way. Right? Like dysfunctional churches. I know lots of churches that behave more like the Simpsons than they do the Herndons. How do they behave like this? Well, plenty of churches, you know, they don't communicate. Plenty of churches bicker over trivial things. Plenty of churches argue over inheritances. Churches divorce each other. Churches become codependent places. Churches ignore huge problems instead of dealing with them. Churches take advantage of one another. Churches uh, enable each other's addictions. So if your definition of family is a group of people that fights all the time and makes big scenes at the holidays, <laughs> then there are plenty of churches that are exactly that. But that's not what God had in mind when he called his people to function as a family. God called his people to function as a family in the best sense of the word. What does that look like, though? What does it look like for the church to function as the healthy family we are called to be? That's actually the question that I want to go after with you this morning. What does it mean to be a healthy family and what does the church, what would that look like for the Christian church? More specifically, what would it look like for us, us here at Rooftop? I have three answers to that question that I want to share with you this morning. Three qualities of a healthy family that can help us know how to behave like one. And I want to share them with you, and I want to share them with you in some detail. I don't want to be brief with these points because they are all important. I want to share them with you after which we will conclude with what is, by definition, our family meal, communion. 
So what does it look like, what does it mean to be a healthy family, and what does that look like for the Christian church? Three things. First, healthy families make themselves a priority. Healthy families make themselves a priority. They prioritize each other. Duh, right? Family first, they say. Even if you can't count on anybody else in life, you should be able to count on your family. That's what they're there for. I mean, given what my immediate family has been through over the past many years, I can't imagine, I can't imagine doing life without my family and my extended family. I can't even picture it. In fact, when I, when I meet someone who is like estranged from their family or lives like very far away from their family, I actually feel a pang of sorrow in my heart. I don't want to make anybody feel bad, but I wonder, how, how do you live? I mean, that's what families are for. That's, why, that's how God set it up. Your family is there for you. Should be. I mean, so much, actually, read the Old Testament. So much of the Old Testament law was given by God to Israelite families so that they could know how they should support and love each other. Before we had the government, before we had neighborhood associations, before we had model train clubs, wherever it is you go for support, we had the family. And the family was there for you. And that's true for the family of faith, too. We need each other. We should prioritize each other. There's a very interesting verse in the book of Galatians which makes this point. As Paul writes, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. As we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. I mean, do good to as many people as you can, but prioritize your church family. Why? Because, duh, that's what we do. I mean, this is actually why our benevolence team, we have a benevolence team here at Rooftop. They meet regularly, and we have a benevolence fund, and we give money to people who need it. In fact, if you need money for any practical needs, we're actually happy to help there, pay bills, pay rent, whatever. Uh, so the benevolence team meets together and reviews those needs, and we really try to do good to all people. I mean, anybody, outside the church, walk-ins, whatever. We try to help as many people as we can, but with limited time and limited resources, we have to have our priorities, and we really, really do prioritize the family of believers here at Rooftop. Why? Well, why wouldn't we? That's what families do. In fact, not only should church family members prioritize each other as a spiritual family, we should even prioritize each other as a spiritual family higher, higher than our actual biological family. In a very real way, the family of God is more important than our biological families. Jesus says this. Jesus says, whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, Yes, and even life itself cannot be my disciple. That's a tough verse. You have to hate your family in order to follow me. You have to hate your mom and dad. I mean, cross-stitch that and give it to your parents for Christmas. <laughs> hey, mom and dad, I made this for you. Oh, look what Junior made for us, honey. <laughs> Funny enough, Somebody actually cross-stitched that and gave it to me as a present a while ago. <laughs> That's where I got that joke. 
Why would Jesus say we have to hate our father and mother in order to follow him? Why would Jesus say we have to hate our siblings in order to follow him? Well, Jesus' point here uh, is that sometimes we actually let our human families become more important than following God as part of a spiritual family. I mean, as normal as it is to make our human family our top priority, it shouldn't be. Our role in God's spiritual family should be an even higher priority for us. Honestly, that makes a lot of us feel uncomfortable. It sort of kind of starts to sound like Jesus is asking us to join a cult. Like, in order to be one of my followers, we have to, like, say goodbye to your family forever. Do it now. I mean, did, did Pastor Matt just kind of say, well, in order to join Rooftop, you've got to say goodbye to your family. No, but Jesus isn't actually saying that. He's not asking us to abandon our families. He's just, I mean, Jesus had a family, and he prioritized them to the very end. I mean, from the cross, Jesus was hanging on the cross. And he said, okay, my mom's down there. Can somebody take care of my mother? So Jesus was a family guy. He's just challenging the basic cultural assumption that our families are the most important thing to us. They should be important, but not the most important thing to us. Our role in the family of Jesus Christ should be the most important thing to us. Now, this can honestly involve some difficult decisions about our time and our energy. Let me give an example. I'm a father. I'm a husband. My immediate family is my absolute top priority. I'm also a Christian pastor, and I have a spiritual family. I'm the spiritual father of this family. It's my absolute top priority. That means sometimes the two conflict, and I have to make some tough choices. Sometimes I choose my biological family. Sometimes I choose my spiritual family. It gets tricky. Honestly, I don't want to get off track here, but this is one of the reasons why Jesus says, hey, if you want to really, really serve me, don't get married. Don't have kids. He actually says that. It's too hard to do both at the same time. Now, if you do, that's fine. That's fine. God loves everybody, you know. Have kids, it'd be fine. But, but if you think about it, don't, don't. I actually read that verse too late. I was already married, so I didn't, didn't have the chance. And sure enough, it's hard. Sometimes I choose my biological family. Sometimes I choose my spiritual family. Uh, sometimes I choose both. A few years ago, for example, I was leading a small group Bible study one night when I realized that one of my son's um, baseball games had been scheduled for the same night. And I really wanted to go to the baseball game. I, decide, I just decided early on, I'm going to be the dad who goes to stuff. But I had made this commitment to the small group. Now, most people would think, in today's day and age, most people would think, of course, cancel the small group, right? Or just don't show up. No contest. Go be with your family. Again, in today's day and age, go be with your family. And I get it. I have canceled lots of church stuff to be with my family. But the church is also my family. And I am not speaking metaphorically. The church is my family. It's a priority. What do I do? In this case, I tried both. I actually invited my small group to my son's baseball game. <laughs> it was the, the most well-attended Little League game in the history of the CYC. Uh, Max had the biggest cheering section that night. I actually think it made him nervous. He, like, went 0 for 3 and dropped two balls in the outfield. But he was the most encouraged, rooted-on team failure that night of anybody there. <laughs> if the church is actually your family, it should be a priority. If it's not a priority, why would you expect it to be a family? If the church is your priority, if the church is your family, it should be a priority. If it's not your priority, why would you expect it to be a family? 
Healthy families make themselves a priority. What else does the church have to learn from healthy families? Well, two. Healthy families work things out. Healthy families work things out. I should emphasize the adjective healthy here. Healthy families work things out. Unhealthy families do not. When people live in an intimate relationship with each other, conflict is bound to happen. You know this. We are all too selfish and sinful for us to live together without getting into some uh, conflicts, big and small. Every family does. The question is not whether or not your family is going to have conflict. The question is, how are you going to deal with it? Most families actually respond to conflict in one of three ways. Uh, They avoid it until it becomes an even bigger deal down the road. They attack it in violent and unproductive ways, or they engage it productively. For all my family's deep sense of happiness, my family was a conflict avoidance family. We could avoid conflict like the best of them. We could avoid elephants really well. What's that? Oh, it's nothing. It's nothing. That large mammal with the large trunk in the kitchen. Don't ignore it. We are experts at conflict avoidance. What about you, though? In fact, quick poll. Raise your hand if you grew up in a conflict avoidance family. You were just experts at dancing around issues. Oh, there's an issue. Whoa, dance. Just dance around issues. Just kind of missing. Oh, there's an issue. You're going to dance. Dance. About half of you, conflict avoidance families. Raise your hand if you grew up in a family that attacked conflict in an unhealthy unproductive way. You were just always fighting. Probably about a quarter of you. You would get up in the morning out of bed like this. Where where are my parents? (laughs) You would show up at the breakfast table just ready to go. No one's going to take me down today. Pass the mashed potatoes. Raise your hand, though, if you grew up in a family that dealt with conflict Directly, lovingly, openly. Like one person in the balcony. Two, thank you. (laughs) This is rare. This is rare, but it happens. And God is insisting that it happen here, no matter how rare it is. As Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gifter there at the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother or sister. Then come and offer your gift. And elsewhere, Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won your brother over. It is very important to recognize here That in Jesus' instruction on dealing with conflict, he always addresses the people involved as what? Siblings. Brothers and sisters. It's like he's reminding us that the conflicts we get into with each other in church aren't just little tiffs we have with other random people. I mean, it's really easy to ignore little tiffs that we get into with random people. But the people that we are currently surrounded with are not random people. We're not just fellow Christians or just fellow church members. We're actually brothers and sisters. That little theological disagreement, squabble, that you got into at your small group on Tuesday night, that's not just with some odd person with some weird opinions. It's actually your, your spiritual brother. Uh, that run-in that you had on, the, on the, the parade planning committee, 
isn't some random irritating person. That's your brother. And we got to work that stuff out as brothers and sisters because as brothers and sisters, we are going to be spending eternity together. When we get in fights with each other, it's not like we can avoid each other forever. We are going to have to deal with each other eventually. God is not going to let us just kind of keep avoiding our conflicts or dealing unproductively with our conflicts forever. I mean, when we show up in heaven uh, before anything else, God is going to sit us down on the conflict couch. Hey, both of you, sit. And he's going to get down on his knees and say, all right, no harps, no heavenly banquets, no heavenly pony rides, whatever you came here looking forward to. None of that until you work this out. So go. That's going to happen. He is not going to let the new heavens, his new heavens, and his new earth be sullied by our conflicts. And if that's going to have to happen, then, suggestion, start now, maybe, think about it. Sorry, I meant do it. I don't mean to get on one of my soap boxes, but while I'm up here, uh, this is why the process by which many people leave churches just breaks my heart. I know people come and go in churches. It happens. I've realized this. It kind of has to happen. People need to be able to, to come and go to, to churches. People leave churches, and it's fine. But it happens so frequently, and it happens so badly. I mean, sometimes longtime church family members just kind of stop coming to church. Uh, something happens, or they get bored, they start going elsewhere without really telling anybody. Sometimes they send an email, sometimes they don't. Or, or they get into a fight, and they just kind of decide to leave. I mean, that's kind of how people leave churches these days, even family members. They just stop coming. But think, think about this. Think about this, really, from a family perspective. My parents would be devastated if I just decided to leave the Herndons one day and go join the Smiths. They would be devastated. They would, like, track me down, and they would call me up. Hey, Matt, I, th I thought you were happy here. And I would say, oh, no, 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 no. It's just time to try something else. You know, I, I, uh, no offense, I wasn't a big fan of the cooking. The Smiths and... and Man, this is amazing. Mom and Dad, the Smiths just built a really cool home addition with like a rec room and a pool table, and they play cool music, and it's, it's, not, it's really not as loud as you play it over at your house. And, and, and I just wanted to check it out. It's a, it's a little closer on my route home, you know, from school, and uh, over, they dress a little bit better over here, you know, and... and uh, it's just, I just kind of like it. It's just something different. No, no offense, we wouldn't do that, right? We wouldn't do that. We wouldn't leave one family to go to another family. We wouldn't do that, right? But, oh, we do. We do it all the time. We leave one family for another. We treat the family of God as something other than a family. I mean, here's a question. Here's an honest question. How would we ever expect... How do we expect the church to feel like a family if we're not willing 
to treat it like one. How would we ever expect, what reason would we have to expect the church to feel like a family if we're not willing to treat it like one? The people who have found a sense of family here at Rooftop, and there are many, the people who have discovered a spiritual family here at Rooftop did so because they treated it like a family. They fought for it like a family. They made their way through conflicts. They practiced commitment and devotion. They found family here because they treated it like one. And here's the thing, you can too. You really can You can find family here if you're prepared to treat it like one. What does a healthy church look like, and what does the church have to learn from it? Healthy families make themselves a priority. Healthy families work things out. And thirdly, healthy families know what holds them together. Healthy families know what holds them together. Now, from a technical perspective, uh, the thing that holds a family together is actually that they share some sort of blood or legal relation. Underneath all the Herndon love and affection um, we are, is our blood relation. Or in the case of my adopted daughter, our, our legal relation. I mean, that's the underlying connection that we have with each other. That's, that's why we're all in the same tree. Families share a fundamental bond like that. So does the family of faith. You might even say that the Christian church as a family is related by blood as well, not our own blood, but Christ's. His blood was spilt, and we who believe in him are related to one another by blood, by the sacrifice of his blood. And this spiritual relation that we have to one another is described in the New Testament as the ultimate relation, in fact, more important than any other blood relation. I mean, as I've mentioned, one of the more scandalous teachings in the Bible is that in Christ, the very definition of family is altered. Family no more, at least God's family, isn't a matter of who's married to whom and who gave birth to whom. Family, God's family, is a matter of who belongs to him and who doesn't. In a very interesting scene in the Gospels, for example, uh, Jesus' mother and his brothers... Uh, are out looking for Jesus. Maybe you know this scene. Jesus is well into his ministry. He's been out teaching and preaching like the Son of God for a couple years. And frankly, he's been embarrassing the family. Like Jesus is out there claiming to be the Messiah. Put yourself in his family's position. Oh my gosh. My son, my brother, is out there pretending to be the Son of God. This is just embarrassing So they, like, call a family meeting. What do we do about Jesus? He's out pretending to be the Messiah again. And they said, well, we just got to go get him. Let's go get him. So they kind of get together, and they go find where Jesus is. They just have to follow the crowd, and they kind of work their way into the back of the crowd. And, like, hey, can can you get his attention? Can you you tell Jesus that that his brothers and his mother are here, and it's dinner time? Tell him that. It's dinner time. And so the crowd's like, hey, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are here. And maybe you know what Jesus says. Jesus says, are my mother and my brothers? Anyone who does God's will is my brother or my sister and my mother. And you can imagine this family. They're like, oh my gosh, stop, just stop. (laughs) He won't stop. And he doesn't. Who are my mother and my brothers? Anybody who does God's will is part of my family. Now some of us, frankly, have heard this verse so much that it fails to shock us. But in an ancient Jewish culture, to deny family relationships was practically illegal. Nobody had the right to deny their family relations. 
And like I said, Jesus was a good brother, a good son. He loved his family. He is speaking hyperbolically here. He's exaggerating to make a point. His point is that in order to be part of the family of God, that's what it takes. Do God's will. I mean, many of the ancient Israelites defined God's family in ethnic ways. You are a member of God's family if you are Jewish. Jesus is saying, nope, not it. You're a member of God's family if you do God's will. That's what holds God's family together. We are those who do God's will by the blood of Jesus. Those who don't do God's will aren't part of our family, uh, his family or ours. Now, honestly, this is sad. This is sad because it means that the family of God does not include everyone we want it to. We all have loved ones who could care less about the will of God. I mean, that's why I pray so desperately for my extended family. That they can come to love and be loved by God so that they too can become a part of God's family, his church. It's sad to think that they won't be able to enjoy that forever. But at the same time, the way God, Jesus, redefines the nature of God's family opens up an infinite number of possibilities for us. It means that by virtue of doing God's will and being his child, we suddenly have many new siblings that we are related to. Just take a moment and look around. You could be the loneliest only child on earth. But if you are a child of God, you have a plethora of brothers and sisters, probably more siblings than you ever dreamed you could ever possibly tolerate. You could be permanently estranged from your parents. But if you are a child of God in the family of God, you have an infinite number of father and mother figures to learn from. You could live seven states away and ten time zones away from your siblings, but you are surrounded by brothers and sisters here in the family of Rooftop. They are just waiting to get to know you and you them. As Jesus himself says, truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, in this present age, and in the age to come. By virtue of being a follower of Jesus Christ, we are related to millions of believers around the world as our siblings. We are never alone. We are never without family. I remember one of the first times I ever realized this, and I'll share this with you, and then we'll wrap up with communion. Uh, while I was in college, uh, back at Truman, I had a spiritual mentor named Joe. Joe was the most devoted family man that I have ever known. And it was a long time ago. I've continued to meet family men, and he was still the most devoted family man I have ever known. Uh, one day, I called him up with a problem because I was an angsty college kid with problems, and Joe said, well, just call me whenever. So I said, all right, I'm going to call you. Um, but I knew that he was home with his family. I think it was Sunday, and I really didn't want to bother him. So I called him up, and he picked up the phone and said, hey, Joe, sorry to bother you during your family time. And he cut me off immediately. He said, what are you talking about? You're my family too. I'm like, oh, okay, well, let's talk. And I have no idea. I have no idea what angsty problem I called to talk to him about. No clue. But I remember that comment. 25 years later, I remember that comment. Because I remember he meant it. Now, how could he say that? Because he knew the bond we shared. He knew that even though we had no legal 
or blood relation, we were eternally bound by the blood of Christ and the will of God. So it is with all God's people. So it is with us here at Rooftop. We are brothers and sisters by the blood of Jesus. And this is what we remember when we celebrate communion. Communion is our reminder of who we are as God's family and how we are who we are. We are God's family by the sacrifice of our brother, God's son, who shed his blood to join us together. That's the miracle which draws us together as siblings, draws us together as a family of hockey players, a family of believers, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. We remember that when we take communion of our blood relation to each other as siblings. Uh, communion is not lining up next to strangers. You might not know who that person is standing next to you. You might not remember their name. You might not even know their name. But that does not mean that they are not your eternal brother or sister and that you shouldn't treat them as such.